Day, we gather together to worship our loving, nurturing God, who, like a mother, knows us intimately, loves us unconditionally, teaches us the He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he first loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice. Upon is based upon Psalm 51. So let's turn to look at that. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts and teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God. God who saves me. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. And my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, will not despise. In your good pleasure, Make Zion prosper. 
build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, that psalm written by David so many years ago, we come in the same way. We come freely admitting our sin. Lord, I come humbly acknowledging that my offences have been an affront to your holiness, your justice and your love. Have mercy on me, Lord. Oh God, you have shown me how my thoughts, words and actions have turned me away from your grace and protection. I can see how the consequences of my sins have affected not only my relationship with you, but with my relationship with my brothers and sisters as well. O Lord, in your loving compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. Father, through faith in you and by trusting in your son's death and resurrection, I believe that you can throw my sins from me as far as east is from west. I know that I can experience forgiveness. How much do they know? How much are they aware of as new babies? Back in the old days, the prevailing assumption was that babies' minds were a blank slate. Everything they learned had to be input from the outside by education as they grew up. Needless to say, that was a male view. The philosopher John Locke thought that. I'm sure mothers would have set him right on that score if he bothered to ask them. These days we understand that even newborn babies actually have a phenomenal level of understanding. They can recognise and prefer the sight of human faces and the sound of human voices to other faces and sounds. Within a few days they will turn towards a familiar face or voice or towards the smell of their mother and they will turn away from other faces, voices and smells. Within the first nine months, they can distinguish between visual and audible expressions of happiness or sadness and anger. But what about the difference between right and wrong? How come as they get older, they do things you as parents don't want them to do? And they do these things because they know that's what you don't want them to do. Is that a sign of original sin? Why are they just pushing the boundaries to gauge your reaction to their non-compliance. Well, they want to know what the boundaries are, why they're there, and how you will enforce them. 
And if at times it feels a bit like a power struggle, that's precisely because that's what's going on. Are you going to get them to do what you want them to do, or are they going to get you to do what they want? And babies have a formidable range of techniques at their disposal to bend you to their will. From just looking absolutely cute and adorable to screaming the place down if there's a confrontation. When we're fighting a losing battle, it can feel as though we're fighting original sin. If Jesus was a perfect child, I wonder what he was like as a baby. W.J. Kirkpatrick, who wrote The Christmas Carol, Away in a Manger, has a lot to answer for by penning that line, The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I don't believe it. And if Jesus was sinless, is that because, as Augustine maintained, he was born to a virgin mother without a human father and was conceived by the Holy Spirit so that original sin couldn't be passed down to him through the supposedly impure act of sexual intercourse? What does the author of Psalm 51 mean when he talks about being born in sin and conceived in in, in iniquity? Is sexual desire the archetypal sin, as some people have argued? Does Christianity teach that babies are born sinful? Do we all inherit from Adam a natural propensity to sin? Is that the problem with that little one that doesn't toe the line? The traditional answer is yes. Augustine held that the whole human race sinned when Adam sinned. We die because we inherit original sin from Adam via our parents. And as a result, we are also so bound to disordered desires that we are unable to avoid sinning ourselves. Centuries later, Calvin defined original sin as a hereditary depravity and corruption of our nature, diffused into all parts of the soul. And in the last century, Louis Burkhoff argues that sin is the heritage of man from the time of his birth, and is therefore present in human nature so early that it cannot possibly be considered as the result of imitation. So the doctrine of original sin is deeply rooted in the Christian tradition. But does it belong there? Matthew Fox, also author of the book Original Blessing, says not. He argues Jesus had never heard of original sin. The term wasn't even used to the 4th century. So it's strange to run a church, a gathering, an ecclesia, supposedly on behalf of Jesus, when one of its main dogmatic tenets, original sin, had never occurred to Jesus. He continues, sadly, Western Christianity is dependent on and chronically attached to original sin. But what they're really attached to is St. Augustine. The fact is most Westerners believe more in Augustine and his preoccupation with sex than they do in Jesus. I'll let you discuss that one yourselves later on. But does he have a point? Well, perhaps he does. Because the Christian teaching on original sin developed not because the church fathers carefully scrutinised children's behaviour, but because in a culture with a high mortality rate, Christian parents were keen to get their children baptised if they fell ill. You see, Christian teaching was that death is the wages of sin. And baptism, first and foremost, was the forgiveness of sins. Not that it was thought that these children had committed any sins, they were too young to have sinned themselves, But nevertheless, their lives were still in danger. What's wrong? The answer to the quandary about the mortality of innocent children was that the sin for which they needed forgiveness through baptism was the sin of Adam that they'd inherited from their parents. That's how 
the doctrine of original sin started. The issue was emphatically not with how they behaved. Augustine, the principal architect of the doctrine of original sin, that we require neither words nor quotations of scripture to prove the sinlessness of infants so far as their conduct in life is concerned. Their need of forgiveness was deduced not from their behaviour, but from their mortality. Children died because they'd inherited original sin from Adam. But before the doctrine of original sin took centre stage, the ancient world generally didn't think that children were born evil. The Greek philosopher Aristotle held that although we're not born in virtue, nature does give us the basic ability to be virtuous, and we develop that ability as others give us training in how we ought to live our lives. And Aristotle was a very wise man. So how much do babies know about good and evil? Paul Bloom is the author of a book called Just Babies, The Origins of Good and Evil. And he's a professor of psychology at Yale. He argues we have a deep sense of good and evil when we're born. His wife, Dr. Karen Wynne, runs what's called the Baby Lab. And about 10 years ago, she and her team ran a series of studies on babies under 24 months old to see how much these babies understand about good and bad behaviour. They begin with a puppet show. In this show, a grey cat is seen trying to open a big plastic box. The cat tries repeatedly, but just can't manage to open the lid. So a bunny in a green t-shirt comes along and helps open the box. Then the scenario is repeated. This time, a bunny in an orange t-shirt comes along and slams the box shut before running away. The green bunny is nice and helpful. The orange bunny is mean and unhelpful. The baby is then presented with the two bunnies from the show. More than 80% of babies in the study showed a preference for the good bunny, either by reaching for the good bunny or by staring at it. And with babies aged three months, the number goes higher to 87%. So Paul Bloom argues that these babies show that even before they can speak or walk, they judge good and bad in the actions of others because they're born with a rudimentary sense of justice. I'm not so sure. Does the experiment demonstrate that babies have an innate sense of right and wrong, or does it show they can just empathise with the grey cat when one bunny's nice to it and the other bunny isn't? Empathy's important. In The Science of Evil, Cambridge psychiatrist Professor Simon Baron-Cohen proposes that evil is the absence of empathy. Zero negative types, narcissists, borderline personalities, psychopaths, they share a neurological disability that short-circuits their empathetic responses. It's the ability to empathise with others that's really important. And in Georgetown University, Dr. Marsh and her team used MRI scans to study the amygdala, the part of the brain that processes emotional reactions. They found that people who were extraordinarily altruistic had significantly larger amygdalas on the right-hand side of the brain, whereas psychopaths and those with zero empathy with others have smaller than average amygdalas. So if it's all down to brain size... Does that mean that some people are born evil? Not necessarily. Because what happens to us as children can and does affect the development and growth of the brain. How our brain develops is literally shaped by our experiences. The all-important ability to empathise is something we learn along the way. And that affects how our brain grows. That's why in Brazil, the drama psychotherapy sessions that the Eagle Project runs for teenage murderers in prison is so vital. Callie is teaching them, for the first time in their lives, what it means to empathise with another person. 
to see and understand how another person feels. And for some, that's a light going on. They've never understood what that has meant before. Psalm 51, the psalm that Mary had read earlier in the service, is a psalm traditionally attributed to King David when he's convicted of his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the ensuing murder of Bathsheba's husband. For those of you who don't know the story, David does behave a bit like a psychopath at this point. One day he's sunbathing on the roof when he catches sight of Bathsheba across the road having a bath. And he's so entranced by what he sees, he invites her to come into the palace and join him and they end up sleeping together. She gets pregnant. David tries to cover up the affair by giving a husband, who's one of his top soldiers, home leave. Gets him drunk. Tries to persuade him to go home and sleep with his wife. But Bathsheba's husband is such a dedicated soldier, he refuses all home comforts while his comrades are fighting at the front. So he sleeps each night on the doorstep of his house rather than going upstairs to join his wife. David's solution is to go one step further and gives orders for Bathsheba's husband to be killed when he goes back to the front in the very next battle that takes place. He behaves like a man with a psychopathic tendency to go for what he wants with a totally callous disregard for the effect that will have on everybody else around him. And when confronted with his sin, he's said to have written Psalm 51, which includes those words, I was born in sin and conceived in iniquity. What's he saying here? It's nothing to do with his mother. He's saying that he's steeped in sin, unavoidably trammeled in it, unable to escape it. As with so much of the language in the Psalms, this is figurative language. And it's always dangerous to take expressions that people use when writing their prayers in the Psalms and use them as a basis for Christian doctrine. Psalm 51 simply doesn't teach that we are all born evil. It's an expression of David's despair over what he's done and wonders how on earth he could have done that. But it's still true to say that we are born into a sinful world. A world where relationships between God and each other are so fractured and damaged that sin is the unavoidable outcome of each of our lives. The basic truth remains that to be human is to be sinful. And as such, the potential for all evil lies within each and every one of us. It lies deep and it's powerful. Brian Masters has written the biographies of several mass murderers, argues that every human being has the capacity to commit wicked acts. It's one of the most terrifying thoughts I've ever encountered, and I think about it year after year, he says. Whereas I am an equitable soul and would never raise my fist in anger or try to do something that's harmful to another person, I have to admit in total sanity and intellectual honesty that I could. I'm so grateful I live in a country where this is unlikely. He identifies three factors behind violent behaviour. What goes on in your mind your home upbringing, and the society in which you live. He says someone who commits murder doesn't just do it so because his parents treated him badly. A lot of people's parents behave badly, but the children don't turn into killers. Is it because he lives in a violent society where it doesn't seem to matter so much? No, because he has a capacity to be different. He can choose to go along with a violent society or fight against it. Is it because of a psychological disorder? No, that's just another excuse. But... If all these things, things are combined, if you're treated badly as a child, if you grow up in a violent society, if you've got a psychological disorder, then you don't stand a chance, he says. Then the murderer is himself a victim. That doesn't mean to say you feel sorry for him, but it means you've attempted to explain very wicked and abhorrent behaviour. 
So thinking about those, those three things. Firstly, we can be profoundly grateful in the UK that the society in which we're bringing up our children does not endorse lawlessness and violence. Instead, it seeks to restrain violent behaviour. And we can be grateful for that and we can pray for our justice system that that continues to be the case. What children see on the TV screen and the computer screen does portray violence as the norm. We need to demonstrate that that's not the way things are or need to be. Being part of this family, being part of the church family, can provide a real-life context where children see a way of life that is good. That's why all of us here share a massive responsibility to make the children who come here feel loved and welcomed and valued because we are modelling adult good Christian behaviour to them. This is where they will see what it means to live as a responsible, peace-loving adult. We all have that role to play. And they will judge how much to follow us by the welcome that we, they see in our faces. And those of us who are parents, what can we do? Teach your children empathy. Work to secure a strong, loving relationship with them. Enter their emotional world. Identify with how they feel. Don't dismiss their feelings, but relate to them. Come alongside them. Be part of what they're thinking and feeling. Get on their level emotionally and be with them and show them empathy. Model it to them. Show them yourself what it means to have emotions. Remember the tear on the mother? And to control them. And remember as well that they will model their own emotional responses on how they see you coping with life and interacting with other people. So how we relate to other adults, they will watch and they will copy because they will use us as their role models. And, and introduce them to Jesus. Introduce them to his love for them, the way of life he commends, his grace and forgiveness when they get it wrong, the power of his spirit to help them make right choices and a network of supportive relationships in the church that can help them be secure and confident enough to make wise and right decisions. And if all those things about Jesus are real in your heart and apparent in your life, you are in the best place to model them to your children. So that through your example, they can find their own way to Jesus, who actually who actually had a phenomenally positive view of children, didn't he? What was it he said? Let the children come to me. Because God's kingdom belongs to such as these. And if you want to enter the kingdom, you need to become like.